0: The sort of beginning of British colonialism in Burma was not the first moment of a kind of revitalization. That's Matt
1: Walton, University of Toronto professor. You might remember him from episode three. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, it's not absolutely necessary to do so to understand this one, but you should check it out regardless. Anyway, something came up in that conversation. We were talking about Burmese history, Buddhism, religious conflict and division, impermanence, and that ancient, timeless, and immutable practice of... Vipassana and
0: insight meditation.
1: Vipassana, also known as insight meditation. And it turns out the practice is not so immutable as you might guess.
0: It's a relatively recent reiteration, and it wouldn't have just been something that lay people didn't do, it was something that also most
1: monks didn't do. Even monks, the most devout followers of the Buddha, didn't regularly meditate back in the 19th century. So what changed? Well, in the wake of British colonization, a few monks took it upon themselves to travel and teach to practice, even to lay people. And none were more influential than someone named Letty Sayadaw.
0: Leti was revolutionary in kind of small deed democratizing of a number of practices that we understand as lay practices today. So meditation was one of them.
1: But Letty didn't just teach meditation in order to make contented, enlightened individuals across Burma.
0: He was not advocating for a kind of outright revolution, but I think we can understand him as advocating for creating or recreating the moral foundation that was necessary for a kind of political change in the country.
1: Meditation was framed in some ways as a very subtle protest against the colonial authorities. And that helped sustain it through the 20th century and into the post-colonial period when...
0: There was quite a lot in in the 70s and 80s um, of Westerners coming to Burma to learn meditation, and then going back and kind of opening up schools or meditation halls.
1: And while to this day, many of these schools maintain their connections to Burmese and other older meditation traditions...
0: We certainly also see what we might call a delinking from the entire sort of Buddhist metaphysics.
1: In episode 3, we looked at how the rise of Facebook in Myanmar exacerbated the pre existing religious tensions in the country, providing a platform for fake news that bolstered popular resentment against the Rohingya and other Muslim minorities. But just as Facebook would go on to unwittingly influence Buddhist nationalists, Buddhist nationalists have unwittingly influenced Facebook, along with a slew of other Silicon Valley tech companies. Driven by the spiritual hunger of the counterculture in Northern California, meditation practice grew, as the influence of Silicon Valley's eccentrics and hippies began to make it one of the greatest concentrations of corporate power in the world. Buddhism, like everything according to its own definition, is impermanent. So it's perhaps only fitting that the explosion of a new practice of meditation in the West often seems to bear only the most tenuous connections to its roots. But as the tech world champions the endless power of mindfulness under a new, secular, and scientific ethos, what's being lost? I'm Joel Elliott. This is Polarities.
2: Hi there. Oh, hello Roshi. I'm yeah. glad I got the right you're, place. I wasn't sure. You did, yeah. You're Joel. I'm thinking that it might be good to go down to my office.
1: In Muir sure. Beach, north of San Francisco, I spoke to Norman Fisher.
2: I am uh, a poet, a writer, Zen Buddhist priest.
1: Norman's history coincides with the rise in the Bay Area of Buddhism amidst the counterculture. Think Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder but also the rise of Silicon Valley's
2: tech overlords. The the San Francisco Zen Center, where I was practiced for so many years and where I was abbot, it's been very, very influential. Certainly in Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs was a friend of the Zen Center and practiced Zen himself.
1: According to Norman, the influence of Buddhism has been pervasive here, but it's not always called Buddhism explicitly.
2: I think it's a story that hasn't really been told. Because it's a huge business, right? Offering programs to corporations, educational institutions, hospitals, continuing education programs, leadership development programs, contemporary psychology, not called Buddhism, not using any Buddhist language. But, and, and, and if you look at the people who started those programs and who invented them, they're almost always people who have some involvement with Buddhism.
1: Psychologists and educators may agree with Buddhists on several key points on human nature that our emotional reactions aren't always reliable or helpful, that our desires are continuously unfulfilled by living in the real world, conclusions that the Buddha came to two and a half millennia ago.
2: That's where the meditation part comes in. Meditation is a way of opening the space inside oneself to see more variously who one is and then to welcome others into that.
1: But as meditation has seeped more deeply into our culture, it has downplayed the role of Buddhism and upgraded the role of the catch-all term mindfulness, which carries with it more secular and even scientific associations. Loosened from Buddhist baggage, mindfulness has spread into popular therapy, companies, schools, and workshops throughout the Western world. Perhaps its best-known template is what's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MBSR, a term coined by Jon Kabat-Zinn who teaches at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And the most famous practice in MBSR? Something called the raisin exercise. A
3: little itty-bitty raisin. And you're not going to do anything
1: with it except hold it. It involves examining a raisin as slowly as possible, contemplating its texture, shape.
4: As if perhaps I am... Somebody from another planet who's never seen a raisin. The
1: taste on your tongue.
4: Roll it around in your mouth. The feeling
1: as you start to chew and slowly swallow.
4: Notice how it sticks
3: to your teeth. And imagine it as it travels down
1: and meets your stomach. There's nothing special about a raisin per se. But the idea is to take a simple everyday activity that can help increase concentration And it's that practical aspect of mindfulness that quickly brought it into corporate culture. And one of the most iconic examples of corporate mindfulness comes from one of the most iconic symbols of tech.
2: I started a program at Google.
1: Google was one of the first tech companies to truly embrace mindfulness with a program called Search Inside Yourself, which is...
2: Which is actually a course in emotional intelligence based on meditation practice.
1: The Search Inside Yourself program grew out of a book by the same name, by an early Google employee by the name of Chade Meng Tan.
2: We always call him Meng. He was a, one of the early Google engineers. I think he probably would say that he's employee number 100 or something like that.
1: Meng was actually employee number 107 to be precise. And though he was trained as an engineer, his title was officially Jolly good fellow, Really. Emotional intelligence, I think most people know intuitively a very general sense of what that means, but what is it?
2: What it has to do with is, first of all, uh, a greater ability to know and understand oneself, one's own emotions, and to be able to regulate them without repression or doing violence to yourself.
1: But Meng's ambitions were much higher than simply improving mood or interpersonal dynamics in an office.
2: I think for his own personal reasons became a meditator and was very passionate about meditation. And because he had had this experience, this is an experience that, who has this experience, right? You're you're a kid fooling around on your computer and five years later you're a multimillionaire whose company has taken over the world. So this gave him the idea that this could happen. You could change the entire world, just get started and do something. So he thought he would change the entire world by promoting meditation.
1: Changing the world with meditation. Most people would agree that this seems hopelessly naive. But this was back in... It was
2: in the early 2000s. Still the very optimistic era. Yes, Japan, exactly. Right? Yeah, Silicon Valley was really optimistic. Everybody was young, international. Google was was the most exciting place to be then. It's still probably very exciting, but now there's some degree of cynicism.
1: If you're looking for cynicism, you won't find a shred of it in Shadi Mengtan's book. One chapter is called Three Easy Steps to World Peace. And spoiler alert, they all involve meditation. Which, if you're looking for a rebuttal, see uh, episode 3 of this podcast, and how thousands of meditating monks can still be mobilized to sow division and even violence. Anyway, Norman is no longer involved with Google, but in 2012, it expanded into a full-on institute, the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Less a school than it is a system, expanding to train teachers who then bring it to companies and business programs throughout Silicon Valley and the world. Facebook and Twitter have their own mindfulness programs as well. And now, some version of mindfulness through meditation or other programs is the norm, rather than the exception in tech companies. And many of these companies even employ highly paid personal meditation coaches, specifically to work with top-level executives. In fact, the influential spiritual guru in tech has become somewhat of a cliché. It's even in the HBO satire, Silicon Valley.
2: I hate Richard Hendricks, that little Pied Piper prick.
3: Is is that wrong? In the hands of a lesser person, perhaps. But in the hands of the enlightened, hate can be
1: a tool for great change. And the belief in a world-changing, peace-building, fast-track to enlightenment... It's appropriate that it was popularized by someone who got in on the ground floor of the boom era in Silicon Valley. It's easy for Chade Mengtan, who incidentally retired at the age of 45, to believe that his extraordinary luck and fortune were self-made, the result of an intensive meditative practice. And this is the capitalist ethos writ large, to search inside yourself but perhaps mindfulness itself was uniquely susceptible to the bootstrapping ethic of the very rich. So I spoke to one of its harshest critics.
3: My name's Ron Purser. I currently uh, teach at San Francisco State University in the Department of Management. And I live in beautiful Pacifica, California. It is very
1: beautiful. We've got birds around us right now.
3: Yeah, there's something about being in nature
1: that makes you relax. Is it appropriate or ironic to be talking about mindfulness in a critical way by being out in nature like this? I don't think so. Um, uh, it's so natural that I don't
3: think we need any sort of teacher. just is happening right now.
1: There are a lot of critics of mindfulness out there, but none have summed up the criticism in one word the way that Ron has. Mick Mindfulness.
3: Mick Mindfulness was actually coined by a... Buddhist and a psychotherapist by the name of Miles Neal. It conveys a lot of meanings. at different levels. Uh, So one is the very crass commercial level where companies are using mindfulness as sort of a brand, uh, as a cachet to sell products. For example, Kentucky Fried Chicken has a commercial.
4: What if I told you of a revolutionary system designed to bring comfort to your mind, heart, and stonger. Join me now for a journey into the Comfort Zone. The Comfort Zone. Kentucky Fried Chicken's pot pie-based meditation system.
1: Uh, That goes on for nine minutes, by the way.
3: I think even a deeper layer of the critique, then, is if you look at the rhetoric and you look at the selling points uh, for mindfulness. The way it, it is often advertised and often promoted is that if you do this practice, you will get X. And then what happens is you begin to hear people say, well, mindfulness is just a skill, or happiness is a skill that you can just train your brain. It's like going to the gym and working out.
1: The idea that the source and solution of stress is all inside you that produces a few claims that run counter to the very core of Buddhism. One newsletter from Search Inside Yourself, attributed to the current CEO, Rich Fernandez, advocates for using mindfulness to, quote, envision an aspirational future. Needless to say, a belief system and philosophy based on the idea that our cravings are central to suffering is completely incompatible with this kind of upwardly mobile spirituality. But also, by focusing only inside yourself, mindfulness can ignore the social causes of stress.
3: I saw a lot of resonance with the neoliberal ethos, how it operates on the level of shaping a certain sort of subject. Neoliberalism is a radical social philosophy, which basically does say
1: that the unit of society is the autonomous atomized individual. It caters to a hyper-individualized society, but it's also as if you're using the McDonald's metaphor. The thing about a Big Mac is that it's the same every time you you get it.
3: I think that's part of it, and you see that kind of epitomized in meditation apps, where that's exactly what's happening, is that they've become uh, standardized, scaled up, quantified, and mass-produced.
1: I asked about why so many companies like Google have bought into mindfulness.
3: These programs are paid for and sponsored by high levels of management in the corporation. So I don't think they would be adopting them if there wasn't a direct benefit to their bottom line. And if you listen to the corporate management trainers, I went to one workshop where the topic was how to sell a corporate mind from this program. And I was kind of stunned by just how overt it was. They sell these things by pitching it that it will improve productivity. They don't pitch it necessarily in terms of individual well-being
1: the idea of exploiting the connection between employee well-being and productivity goes back to the 1920s there was a psychiatrist by the name of
3: elton mayo he was a harvard psychiatrist who was asked to, to come to the western electric plant on the west side of chicago to look at issues around
1: productivity his work resulted in the hawthorne plant experiments this was back in the days of Henry Ford, when factory owners began paying attention to what they called worker welfare. And what Mayo identified as a chief problem in these plants was... His diagnosis was that, and particularly for women, they were suffering from what they called mental
3: reveries, which nowadays would be translated as mind-wandering, in other words, daydreaming and not paying attention.
1: It wasn't about individual well-being per se, but how individuals might be malfunctioning. Like a machine.
3: Everyone knows that people are important in business, but a way of thinking which allowed the satisfactions and dissatisfactions of workers to be thought about in relationship to output and productivity.
1: And while mindfulness on its face may seem more focused on personal well being,
3: the same, I would say, goal is to align the subjectivity of workers to business interest and to corporate goals.
1: But even under the very limited terms that they define success, let's say as increased productivity or less stress-related absences, is it even working on that level? I think the literature is
3: mixed at best. It's very hard to do good scientific studies in the field. Field studies are very different than laboratory studies. Mm -hmm. So I would take any study with a grain of salt
1: Mindfulness offers some pretty astounding claims.
4: Living with chronic pain is not easy, but there is something out there that might help.
1: Meditation can lower blood pressure, reduce anxiety. Officers
0: reported less aggression. After a... Boost the immune system, ease pain. Promote a lasting reduction in hyperactivity. Can actually make you nicer. Even lessen flu symptoms. The other day there was a study that came out that says meditation can reduce your chocolate cravings.
1: And some of these claims may be more valid than others. But these studies often lack the rigor of proper double-blind research. There are problems with creating a control group. After all, what's the placebo version of mindfulness? Or those who conduct the study are personally invested in mindfulness teaching themselves, skewing the results. And finally, the students themselves can misreport positive findings. Which actually goes right back to the Hawthorne experiments. The study is famous today for one unfortunate side effect. Mayo and the researchers tried turning up the lights to increase productivity, and it worked. Then they tried turning them down again, and that seemed to work too. Later, this was termed the Hawthorne effect when the subjects of a study adjust their behavior in response to being observed. They reported
3: feeling a lot better about their workplace, but actually nothing uh, structural changed whatsoever. Wages didn't change. Working conditions didn't change.
1: In other words, mindfulness might create better productivity or even a better sense of well-being just because the subjects know they're being tested for productivity or well-being.
2: But
3: nobody's asking the, the real question of why are people checked out of work? Why are people so stressed out in in the corporate workplace? Those questions are, are just taken as a given.
1: Why are people so stressed out in the workplace? Well, first and foremost, a whole host of problems that mindfulness wouldn't address. A study at Stanford found the biggest causes of workplace stress were a lack of health insurance and an increase in employment precarity. So while mindfulness may be beneficial, it shouldn't be a replacement for real structural changes. Which turns out to be more than a hypothetical. Take Starbucks. An old petition from employees was recently revived, decrying the understaffing and lack of hours leading to stress and financial burden. Starbucks response, rather than addressing the obvious root causes of the declining morale, offered their employees a free subscription to the Headspace meditation app. But beyond its personal benefits, what about that bigger question? What about mindfulness's claims to building a more compassionate world? Because the social aspects of suffering aren't limited to just the stress caused by those in the workplace of those companies, but the broader circle in which they operate. And when you look at how popular mindfulness is among the elite, that's a big circle. For example, it's been consistently pushed at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And for big tech in particular, another conference called Wisdom 2.0, a forum where new ageisms and tech language seem to fuse together. What I wanted to do is really think like a hacker. I guess being a computer engineer,
0: I tried to hack everything about myself. So So
1: five years ago at one of these conferences, well, I'm going to pass it off to Amanda Rehm.
5: Yeah, you want me to talk? Mm -hmm. You want to hear the bell? Oh, yeah. I'm a union organizer. I work with domestic workers in California. So a few years ago when um, Google and Apple and a bunch of those companies got together to have their big conference on corporate mindfulness,
1: Wisdom at that
5: point, Wisdom 2.0, does it change its number every
1: year?
4: think so, but I'm not sure. I yeah. think that's
1: still it. I, I think the 2.0 was always the... It's like a
5: slight upgrade from the original Buddhist wisdom, I <laughs> yeah. guess. It's the 2.0 on what the I guess Buddha we're
4: taught. the 1.0. You
1: also heard in there Mushim Aikida. Mushim and Amanda are teachers and practitioners at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. So as the people who are definitely
5: at the back of the bus <laughs> <laughs> in Buddhism, um, you know, I would say we were really concerned with those companies
1: so in the middle of one of the panels at Wisdom 2.0, featuring none other than Chade Mentan.
5: And today it is three steps to build corporate mindfulness the Google
1: way. Amanda and others interrupted the event. So to
5: start off, With I'm a sorry. banner that said San Francisco, not for sale. Uh, this person.
1: <laughs> the announcer kind of responds awkwardly. You hear some scattered half-hearted applause in the audience. Chanted.
4: Wisdom means stop displacement. Wisdom means stop surveillance. What do we want? Stop the additions. What do we want it? No. What do we want? Stop the evictions. What do we want it? No. San Francisco, not
5: for sale. San Francisco, not for
4: sale.
1: There are a few more laughs. It's generally an uncomfortable moment. Meng himself mostly sits cross legged, eyes closed. Then as they're ushered off the stage, the speaker regains control of the panel. This is sort of an important moment. You can sort of this moment as something we didn't expect to have happen, happened, and it Or can this as a moment of practice. The speaker suggests using this as a moment of practice. But in the meantime, as he's speaking... We were pretty
5: brutally escorted out by the private security of the event.
1: At the side of the stage, the protesters are wrestling with a security guard who's attempting to yank this banner out of their hands. So there's a tug-of-war that continues for a while. Finally, the security guard lets go.
5: But I think the part that was most disturbing to me was that the presenters, and these are famous, very well-paid, professional, spiritual teachers, proceeded to
1: sort of reground everyone in their bodies and continue to meditate. The speaker tells the audience to check in with their bodies.
5: It was, for me, a very stark moment of how far we've come from the Buddha's original teachings. I mean, the Buddha, when they taught, oftentimes people interrupted, oftentimes people were challenging, and they had questions, and they engaged with the Buddha. Never, as far as I know, did the Buddha just continue to meditate and ignore.
1: Amanda, a dedicated Buddhist and meditator, but also someone who works at the front lines of the massive housing crisis facing the Bay Area, saw her two worlds collided at Wisdom 2.0. The relationship between the tech companies present at this event and the housing crisis is remarkably direct.
5: At that time, we were really trying to win a policy in the city of San Francisco that would limit the uh, tech shuttle buses that take tech workers down to those campuses that are about an hour south of the city.
1: Studies found that wherever these tech shuttles were picking up workers in the Bay Area... There were widespread
5: evictions, and people were losing their homes in communities, long-standing immigrant communities, the queer community.
1: San Francisco is the most expensive city in the U.S., with other Bay Area cities like San Jose and Oakland coming in the top 10 as well. The cost of housing doubled in a barely five-year period between 2012 and 2017. The city has the highest rate of unsheltered homeless in the U.S. And last year, the number jumped by 30% to nearly 18,000.
5: You know, San Francisco has always been a place of refuge, Mm -hmm. a sanctuary city.
1: Downtown Market Street charts the divergent paths of the city between homelessness and gentrification. Here you can find both the city's poor and its wealthiest side by side. And while down the bay in Palo Alto and Menlo Park are where Google and Facebook have their headquarters, big tech is well represented within this city as well. And you can feel the impact of a slick, high-tech meets pastoral spirituality even in the architecture. At first in mission in the lobby of the recently built Salesforce tower, massive projections of LED screens show ERSAT's waterfalls in redwoods, and every floor of Salesforce's headquarters has a meditation space. And who could forget WeWork, whose San Francisco headquarters are in the same building? A few months ago when I was there, a union construction worker was protesting against a company's policy of underpaying its contractors. They're picking up every bit of space in town. You, you go around town, you'll see WeWork's name. In fact, WeWork was just weeks out from a steady collapse. Thousands of employees laid off following a criminal overvaluation, with infamously corrupt CEO Adam Newman paid millions just to go away. Incidentally, Newman fancies himself a child of enlightenment as well. He majored in something called Buddhism and business and used to walk the streets barefoot. While mindfulness remains a hugely popular internal policy, the external actions of so many of these companies seems reckless in contrast. Can more awareness do anything to change how a company operates in the world? Norman Fisher, who now teaches meditation retreats to business people outside of their companies, seems to think so. I think one of the main critiques of this kind of program is that is it really to increase productivity and is that a justifiable reason to teach
2: meditation not to me Uh, maybe it is to a ceo of a company but not to me i was clear on this from the beginning with the google folks and i always say mark lesser and i do an ongoing series of retreats
1: Mark Lesser, by the way, was also one of the co-founders of Search Inside Yourself at Google.
2: We've been doing it for decades, called Company Time. And they are retreats for business people based on meditation. Now, in the beginning of this whole mindfulness movement, the emphasis was on productivity. I mean, I never was a great fan of that idea, but that was strategic to convince people that this was worthwhile. That's now changing, actually. And now the discourse is about compassion. So the point of meditation is not just to do a better job, but to make you a more feeling, compassionate, and I would add ethical person. So in our business retreats, which are not sponsored by a company, they're independent retreats. People from various companies come to these retreats. And in these retreats we say you can't have emotional intelligence, you can't be an effective and proper human being without a sense of ethics. So beware, because if you practice meditation in the way that we're teaching it, it will have the effect of making you more uncomfortable than you were before with unethical behavior in your life and in your work.
1: And so what are the consequences of that discomfort?
2: One guy who was an investment banker who came to those retreats and eventually I mean, he was one of the founders of the company. His discomfort with what was going on in his company became so strong, he actually couldn't stand it anymore. And he ended up selling his share in the company, leaving the company and basically becoming a full-time Zen priest.
1: That's really interesting because I spoke to Ronald Purser, do you know who he is? Mm-hmm. He just wrote a book called Make Mindfulness
2: and he's- Oh yeah, I've heard big, about that, yeah, big, yeah, he's very critical of yeah. yeah very yeah.
1: critical, and I actually mentioned that exact hypothetical, I said, but you don't think there is potentially even a Trojan horse in that I'm a Google employee, I'm taking this meditation class, I'm searching inside myself. like, hey, this job sucks and it's draining me, I'm going to quit or, you know, I'm going to help form a union or something. I wouldn't place my bets on it. Uh, I know that's
3: the utopian uh, claim that's made. By most corporate mindfulness, we'll see this miraculous transformation towards corporate social responsibility and becoming more ecologically responsible and so forth. But I think what that does is, again, it's the atomized neoliberal way of looking at it because it leaves it to the happenstance of individuals. Let's say that mindfulness was that successful in a corporation and the top talent started quitting in droves because they took a mindfulness program. They would kill that program in a minute.
2: Well, that's probably true from the company's perspective, that's right. Capitalism is a very powerful idea and it will take the greatest thing and turn it into itself. But certainly the way that I teach meditation, which is um, not just learn how to focus your mind and cast away distractions. It's learn how to focus your mind and create an open space inside for what is in you to arise. And so you end up changing.
1: Meditation, especially secular mindfulness, is very individualized it's really focused on if you have problems with stress or emotional problems that they're inside of you and that the solution comes from inside of you as opposed to say the social forces that might create that stress or unease and in a company that's not just some abstract thing that's could be something very concrete like i have to work 14 hours a day or is meditation even secular meditation is it compatible with Understanding those broader social forces that are creating stress and unease and suffering.
2: Oh yeah, I mean certainly the kind of meditation that we do in Zen and my understanding of meditation. There is no inside and outside. I mean, if you look inside yourself, where, what are you looking at? You're you're looking at responses that come up from everything that's happened to you right, from all the interactions you've had with other people, your social formation, your, you know, your family formation, your culture, right, that's what makes you, you, right, you're not like you in some outer space capsule or something, so there's no inside and outside, inside and outside are are one phenomenon, and the more you practice, the more you realize, I have an enormous responsibility here, with every thought and every word and every deed, to have an impact, ...on the world around me, because I am the world around me.
1: So meditation is meant to make you uncomfortable. To erase the differences between inside and outside. Meant to impress upon you the enormous responsibility to act justly in the world. And taking that social responsibility to heart, making it the essence of, not just the byproduct of, their teaching... That's the point of East Bay Meditation Center.
5: EBMC is a continuation of the teachings, while we try to reform and change a lot of the baggage that um, has sometimes accompanied the tradition.
1: So what's the baggage you're referring to there?
5: I'm so grateful that the Dharma came to the U.S. and I could encounter it as a U.S.-born person.
1: Side note here, Dharma basically refers to the whole set of practices taught by the Buddha to his followers.
5: And I can tell you as a young queer union organizer, like it was not something that was easy for me to access because it tends to be in many places where I went seeking the Dharma, very white and very expensive.
1: In contrast, EBMC's mission is to promote Buddhism and mindfulness through what they call radical inclusivity, meaning...
4: Meaning that when anyone shows up at the door... Regardless of their ability to pay, because we do operate on gift economics, which is donation basis, that we're going to really try our hardest so that everyone feels welcomed.
1: In that spirit, EBMC has classes for various groups who might otherwise not be able to access Dharma teachings including programs for
4: people of color and multiracial folk, people with young children. We have a teen program, LGBTQI. We have programs for people with disabilities, chronic illness, and chronic
1: pain. While EBMC does facilitate more secular mindfulness programs, as well as Buddhist meditation, both Mushim and Amanda are keenly aware of the problems at stake in leaving behind the rest of Buddhism. Because meditation was only a small part of the tradition inherited from countries like Burma,
4: In those Buddhist teachings, it's very clear that mindfulness is not the whole ball of wax. Mindfulness is part of an entire path and set of teachings, which includes a foundation in ethics. Now, when we take this mindfulness meditation technique, we strip away all of the Buddhist path, the foundation of ethics... Uh, In that spiritual way, and we take it into secular life, it has been a technique that's been successfully used by many, not all people, for peak performance in jobs, in sports, for improved concentration, and for relaxation and stress reduction. So you notice in those three categories, there's nothing about what those things are being used for. Mm. And that would never be the case in the original setting of Buddhism.
1: So do you feel like something's really being lost there when you strip away the, the tradition or the,
4: the what-for part of it? I should add a caveat. That's a good question in that accusations have been made to secular mindfulness teachers and, and programs. Like, you've done away with all the ethics. And many of them said, well, no, we haven't. Because built into the practice of mindfulness, mindfulness is awareness. Our first principle is that of ahimsa or non-harm. And so if we truly become aware, I mean, is it really part of intrinsic human nature in the normal sense to go around like destroying things and hurting people and lying and stealing and so forth? Other people say, hey, look, Greed, hatred, and delusion are so embedded in our society that, yes, there can be people who can use these meditation techniques to ruthlessly exploit others, and they really are not going to think about it anymore, and they can practice this kind of meditation for years, and it will never actually occur to them that they might think about changing their way of treating other people.
5: But actually, it's created a whole set of what I would call spiritual bypassing, of using spiritual practice to feel okay at the same time that all these terrible things are happening.
1: So might corporate mindfulness even be counterproductive?
5: And the dharma is the dharma. We're in the here and now. I mean, we work very hard to practice in the present moment. I think that right now we're living in... Uh, conditions of degradation and devastation like we've never seen before as a human society, as a species. So do I want to hold companies and do I want to hold politicians, do I want to hold anyone with power responsible for shifting those conditions? Absolutely. Am I fighting for a religion? No. I'm fighting for more people to have the opportunity and have the conditions to awaken. And the amount of poverty, the amount of wealth inequality the amount of homelessness, the carceral state, the things that we're facing now, these are all real conditions that have got to shift for people to be able to survive and thrive. And I think the ground of waking up is everywhere. Right? You can wake up as a tech CEO and you can wake up as the person who makes the Caesar salad for the tech CEO working for the subcontractor sleeping in your car. So. We hold all beings as being capable of transformation. We're all in this together. So let's be in this together. Create corporate mindfulness, but actually allow it to lead you to where it led practitioners of the Buddhist path always, and spiritual practitioners long before the Buddha ever existed, which is to being in true service and true love and true connection with our fellow beings on the planet.
1: But what does that kind of mindfulness practice look like? Well, let's go back to the raisin-eating exercise again.
3: The initiation ritual for mindfulness-based stress reduction programs is to take a raisin, to gaze at it.
1: Ron Purser, again. To
3: roll it around in your mouth and kind of slowly take in the sensations of the raisin, mindfully.
1: But with an important addendum.
3: He could still do that, but at the same time he could think about, okay, where did this raisin come from? Did it come from the Central Valley where migrant farm workers earning very, very low wages and being threatened by being deported? What about the externalities and how far that raisin had to travel to get from the farmland to the East Coast? What about the pollution in the Central Valley? In other
1: words, consider the context.
3: So, you know, we could politicize these practices in ways that deepen people's
1: appreciation for interdependence. Imagine yourself in the time of the Buddha, India around the 6th century BCE. Because Gautama Buddha was just one of many self fashioned gurus, yogis wandering homeless and penniless seeking enlightenment. And unlike the growing strain of Hinduism, the Buddha's moment of awareness under that bodhi tree where he meditated produced a unique insight, that rather than some universal soul, everything was inherently empty lacking in essence. And so, in its emptiness, everything, every human, rock, tree, was interconnected and interdependent. For an industry and a place so invested in the idea of connection, it bears recognizing how much of what the top tech companies have fostered is division and atomization. And to understand that real connection includes acknowledging the symbiotic relationship between the massive homelessness problem in San Francisco and the rise of the wealthiest tech CEOs in the valley. Between a demanding, toxic workplace environment and the types of reckless growth practiced by Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Between HR pushing mindfulness concentration while creating instruments of mass distraction. Between the raisin and how it arrived in your mouth, if you will. This is the final episode in the first season of Polarities. Polarities. And if there's one common thread through all these stories, it's that religion itself is inherently empty. And maybe that's a disappointing non-conclusion, but so be it. We've seen how Buddhism can be used to prop up the worst excesses of ethnic tribalism and capitalism, or it can be used to challenge those very forces. Religion has propped up old culture wars in the U.S., but it's also been used to support the bravest voices in the fight for human rights and the sanctity of life. And religious texts like the Tower of Babel have been pushed into the service of nationalism and a diverse, globalized world alike. So where does that leave us? Well, where we've always been, perhaps, without answers. Religion isn't going away, though it transforms itself and seeps into politics, psychology, even technology. And the greatest danger is when religion in its most traditional, or secularized form, becomes calcified. Because sometimes when you hold on to the answers so tightly, you forget that original voice, anxious, stammering, asking big questions into an uncertain void. Polarities is written and produced by me, Joel Elliott, with additional assistance from Marco Avolio. Music and sound mixing by Daffod Hughes, recording help from Miles Miley. Thanks to everyone who helped me out in the bay and all the other bodhisattvas that helped make this possible. You know who you are. We'll be taking a break from Polarities for the time being doing research on a new set of episodes. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the series, please share it around and you can keep updated on Twitter, at Polarities Pod. Thanks so much for listening.